Greetings, folks. It's Andy, the Analytical Preacher. In today's podcast, we're going to speak on a very sensitive topic. We're going to talk about the Bible and abortion. And I know for um, a lot of folks, this is a very personal issue. Uh, For a lot of folks, this is a hotly contested political issue. What I want to try to do is have a a very civil conversation about this. Um, I, I think everyone can agree that our discourse in America has become rather uncivil. Uh, and I even think with topics like abortion, people try too hard to score sort of cheap political points. And they make these snide remarks like, hey, if you've never been pregnant, then you don't have a say in this issue. Clearly, that's not helping. It's not moving us forward. Um, so, so I want to try to be very respectful. I mean, the truth is you, never, you don't have to be a slaveholder or a slave in order to have a moral opinion about slavery. So I, I just don't think... Those kind of snarky comments uh, are helpful. And and so here's where I'm coming from. When you've sat and spoken to, and sometimes it's a young lady and her family uh, who has an unwanted pregnancy, or sometimes you're speaking to uh, a young lady and uh, her boyfriend maybe before they've spoken to their family, there's, there's, it, it just becomes very real. And there's a, there's a sense of, of dread and panic sometimes in these young ladies. Sometimes there's a sense of hope and uh, encouragement, but the, the emotions run the gamut. And for any individual person, the emotions can go from high to low. This is a very real uh, topic. And so I want to make sure that we handle it in an appropriately sensitive way. I'm not trying to score any cheap political points here. If we're going to look at the Bible and abortion, I think there's kind of three sort of overlapping dimensions that we need to look at. Uh, And one is, why are Christians, why are Bible followers so concerned about this issue to begin with? And really the first dimension is just this. The Bible tells Christians, tells God followers, that we need to be concerned about those who have a limited voice in the public sphere, basically. So if you go back to the very early verses of the very first chapter of the Old Testament prophecy book of Isaiah, God is telling the people of Israel, here are the things that are separating me from you. Here are the things that you're not doing well. And, and we get to verse 16 in, in chapter 1. And Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says this, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In other words, you need to stop doing bad stuff, but that's not actually my primary concern. What I need you to do is start doing more good stuff. The Bible often speaks of widows and orphans, the fatherless and the widow, because they were individuals in that society, especially who were in a difficult situation through no fault of their own, and they had limited resources to help them. And so God was telling his people, look out for those individuals. Most of you are aware, of course, that the Bible is sort of split into two main divisions, the before Jesus portion, the Old Testament, and then the Jesus and after portion in the New Testament. That was an Old Testament verse. There is an after Jesus verse as well that says very, very similar things. Jesus' half-brother James writes this in his the first chapter of his letter. 
James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see that same idea, take care of the orphans and the widows, look out for those who don't can't look out for themselves or don't have a voice for themselves. So related to this, and I think a lot of folks are aware, but maybe not everyone, related to this, the initial push in both the United Kingdom and the United States to eliminate slavery, first the slave trade and then slavery itself, that push came almost exclusively and only from Bible-believing Christians. Now, ultimately, as some individuals like a Frederick Douglass or a Harriet Tubman were able to escape slavery themselves, they became the primary voices of abolition, and they had the primary impact. But initially, when when blacks were held in slavery, who spoke for them? They didn't have especially a political voice. And so Christians became the political voice for those individuals. And it's interesting if you go back and look at political speeches or newspaper editorials, there were often comments, these Bible thumpers, these Christians need to keep their morals to themselves. Slavery is what it is. It's a part of our society and so forth. And the Christians just continued to say, but we feel we have to speak on behalf of those who don't have a voice for themselves. And that's exactly where we come at it with the unborn today. They don't obviously have a voice for themselves. And so Christians feel like we need to continue to raise and keep it visible in the public square, in the public sphere, that there are individuals who today do not have a voice. And we try to provide that voice for them because we believe God tells us that's the type of religion that is pure and undefiled. Now, of course, an issue that always comes up with abortion is, is an unborn child even a quote-unquote human? And again, we can sort of relate this back to slavery a little bit because there were uh, a number of individuals who said, well, blacks are human-like, but these Africans aren't quite human like us Europeans are human. Um, and they use that. I don't think they truly believed it, but they used that uh, and spoke and wrote that out loud, I think even to try to convince themselves that maybe there was some justification for treating them differently than, say, you would treat your own family, your own brothers and sisters. The same issue, I think, comes up today relative to abortion. And and here's what the Bible sort of helps us. This is where the Bible sort of guides us on this. In the Old Testament law of Moses, so you think back to those second, third, fourth, fifth books of the Bible, In the Old Testament law of Moses, there was a punishment for killing an unborn child that was identical to the punishment uh, for killing a child who had already been born. In the New Testament gospel narratives, uh, we are told that when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she went to go see a relative of hers who was at that time pregnant with John the Baptist. And as the gospel writer Luke describes this interaction between the two women and the fetuses inside them, he uses the word for a child, not for an unborn something that's different. So it sort of seems to be that the scripture is saying, no, the unborn are human. They are children. They do deserve our protection. Of course, there's those wonderful verses in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So we just get this idea that God is telling us through his scripture that the unborn are humans. Now, obviously, science and medicine have a great deal to say about that in today's world. I've not personally seen anything from science or medicine that would suggest otherwise. In fact, if anything, I believe the more recent science and medicine would say, no, they're actually a little more, they're more human, more viable um, than we might have originally thought, say, for example, when a Roe v. Wade was initially issued by the Supreme Court. So I think most Christians do not feel that the unborn fetus is a near human or is something that is soon to become a human, but isn't a human yet. I think most of us feel as though the unborn are real babies. They are real humans. And then, of course, the final issue that we have to touch on is what right does society have to tell me what to do with my body? What right specifically does society have to tell a pregnant mother what to do with her body? Here's the truth. Every law of Moses, every law of the United States government is essentially a moral law. It is saying you may wish in your own natural desires to do this, but we are saying that this is unacceptable. And often we are saying there's a punishment that comes with that. And so every law is essentially a moral argument or is a moral law. It's imposing someone's morals on someone else. I think the question, of course, just becomes a little stronger when it's, but when you tell me what to do with my body, but of course we know that there are other laws which do exactly that. Uh, If you think about just recently, a good example are the vaccine mandates and this is, and, and you may agree or disagree with the mandates, and I may agree or disagree, and, and that's not relevant at all. And this is not a political podcast, um, but you may agree or disagree. But here is the argument for the vaccine mandates. Normally, I wouldn't tell you what you have to do with your body, what you have to inject or not inject in your body. But if you knowingly or unknowingly have a virus in you that can be deadly to someone else, and you could knowingly or unknowingly pass that, unintentionally or intentionally pass that virus to a neighbor, to another person, and then that other person could become extremely ill or ultimately lose their life, then your rights stop where the other person's rights begin. And if And so the issue in those types of arguments becomes or should become in a rational discussion of these things, the issue should become, how likely am I to catch it? How likely am I to give it to someone else if I do catch it? And how likely are they to pass away? Taking the example to the extreme is usually the best way to to examine it. So let's just say there is a 100% chance that if I come in contact with this virus, that I'm going to catch it and a 100% chance that if I catch it, I'm going to give it to someone else and a 98% chance that if I give it to someone else, they're going to pass away. Then we start to say, okay, rights are a fundamental thing in America and we want to support individual rights absolutely to the ultimate degree that we can. But my rights do stop where your rights start and I don't have a right to give you a sickness that's highly likely, almost guaranteed to cause your death if there's a way that it can be prevented. And so in those cases, you would say, yes, we should mandate that people have to get a vaccine so that they don't inadvertently kill those around them. Now, again, the question of 
how likely do I have to be to catch it? How likely do I have to be to transmit it? How likely do you have to be to perish uh, becomes the question that becomes and should be the debatable portion of a vaccine type mandate. There's an actual real American example, however, um, that's that, that most of us will know. Uh, there was a, a case of a lady called Mary Milan. Her, uh, uh, she's really known more by typhoid Mary. Uh, and in the early 1900s, Mary was physically quarantined against her will on a couple of different occasions. And what, what they found out was that she was an asymptomatic carrier of the typhoid bacterium. And so she didn't show any signs of the sickness. She was an asymptomatic carrier, but she was giving it to other people. And some of those people who she unknowingly and unintentionally infected died from the disease. When she was quarantined, some lawyers took her case and said, this is un-American. This is violating someone's rights. Of course, the government argued her rights end where someone else's rights begin. Her lawyers argued, but it's not her fault. It's not her fault that she has this bacterium. It's not her fault that she's asymptomatic. It's not her fault that she gives it to other people. The government continued to insist, but it doesn't matter if she's at fault or not at fault, if it's intentional or unintentional. The issue becomes her rights end or someone else's rights begin. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court actually ruled against her and said that it's an extreme case of the deprivation of rights, but that in this case, she could be quarantined physically against her will because of the her rights end where others' rights begin argument. So let me wrap it up, sort of close out with this. There are other issues where Christians, myself and others that I know, work to defend the rights of those who we don't believe have enough of a voice in the public sphere. Uh, one example are the dreamers, uh, those who were brought into this country by their parents when they were too young to have decided whether they agreed with the decision or not. For many of them, America is now the only home that they've ever really known, yet they don't have a legal status. Now, through DACA, they do have a semi-work uh, status uh, that it, it that sort of defers them being deported, uh, but it's not really, they they haven't really been given the status that they deserve. And so I vote for politicians who I think have pro-dreamer policies. I have written articles uh, in periodicals, uh, Christian periodicals and other periodicals and opinion pieces and done blogs on the internet in support of the dreamers because, again, they don't have a vote. Often their parents also are undocumented immigrants, and so the parents don't have a vote. The dreamers don't have, in my opinion, enough of a voice in our society, and so therefore Christians should support them. I've spoken to a number of Christians who have worked on prison reform issues. They note the fact that in America, about we we incarcerate four and a half or five and a half times more young minority adults than countries similar to ours, like the United Kingdom or Canada, incarcerate. The, the rate at which we put young black men into prison is sort of alarming. Now, as a Christian, I'm not saying that those who have committed a crime shouldn't have to suffer the consequence. That's not the issue at all. The issue is, are we overkilling it? And again, a lot of these young individuals, they enter into the prison system before they're old enough to vote. And so I've spoken to a number of Christians who are actively involved in the state political level to try to 
remedy this issue. And some, of course, I know Christians even worked with Trump uh, when he was trying to do some prison reform, or when he did actually succeed in doing uh, some prison reform, which I thought was a great thing as well. So again, it's not just the unborn today. It's dreamers. It's young individuals who are being incarcerated at rates that just seem astronomically high, uh, given what we see in other countries, etc. But I believe most Bible believing Christians see abortion as an issue where we need to raise the voice. Here's the truth. If I'm an unborn child, I do not want my life to end in the womb. I just do not believe I've ever met anybody who would say, yes, I wish my life had been taken at that time. They simply can't speak for themselves. And that's why Christians are involved in this debate. And it's Hopefully, this helps you understand where the Christians are coming from in this debate. These are these are humans. They're made in God's image. They have the same rights as I do, and one day they'll have the same dreams and aspirations and goals and be able to glorify their Creator in the same way that I do. It's not their fault that they're in this situation. Someone else's rights probably end where their rights begin. And I just believe we need to have an honest civil debate and discourse on this issue. Not, of course, at all discounting the chaos and the worry that comes with an unwanted pregnancy. Again, I've seen that and dealt with that face-to-face a number of times. Uh, So I'm, I think, appropriately sensitive uh, to that issue and will continue, of course, to pray for those mothers uh, and the children and the decisions and the choices that have to be made.